Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Stan Hartling, founder of The Hartling Group, a real estate sales and development firm specializing in luxury Caribbean condominiums and villas. I had the honor to visit Stan's Resorts in Turks and Caicos. If you'd like to watch this interview in video, feel free to go to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to listen to audio only, I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Stan Hartling of The Hartling Group. Stan, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Good to see you, Cameron. Good to see you, too. Well, I've been staying here for reference for a few days this week at one of Stan's properties, The Palms. So to give reference, The Hartling Group, they have The Palms, The Sands, and The Shore Club. Today we're at The Shore Club, and so far, so far my stay has been absolutely beautiful. It's been an amazing experience here at the property of Turks and Caicos. If you haven't been here prior, highly recommend. The, the staff, the care, everything, you get treated care. It's absolutely stunning and I, I must say Stan's empire that he's built here from the sands it's truly incredible oh, thank you my friend it's it's nice I'm glad you're enjoying it of course you had to say that but I, yeah. I, I know you meant it I could tell by the look in your face. for sure all right so I would like to start out with your upbringing so tell us with reference where did you grow up and what was your childhood like very different location than where we're sitting today. It was not, uh, the sun came out two months a year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that's when it hopefully stopped raining. But in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a small little fishing village type of setting uh, outside of Halifax. Wow. Um, only child, uh, which perhaps explains a few things, and, uh, <laughs> and only child in a small village. So uh, very different. But I think that that's a neat transformation to where we are here now. Sure. Because I think you learn at a young age that, uh, as my dad used to say, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't go throwing people out too quick. So yeah. we just grew up uh, in a neat environment where you work with people, you work within the community. And I think coming to a, what was a very small island at the time, population-wise, it was a great transition, even though geographically and weather-wise, it was a big difference. For sure. So with your time there and growing up as a child, would you say that you had an entrepreneurial mindset, say lemonade stands or Sony products or anything like that? Yeah, I think for some strange reason, and I don't know if it was because there was no entrepreneurship really, when I say none, very little, uh, in the family, I think it almost led to uh, really having a lot of people that I admired that were entrepreneurs in various mm. points in life. Uh, and it just became very interesting. But I always sort of hate saying that, especially when speaking to any younger audience, because or, or mid, middle middle age that are want to really make that transition into entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. because if they feel that they didn't have that as a child, then maybe they're not meant for it. And I think some people do, some don't. They discovered at different points. But for me, ironically, and I have no idea why, but even at the age of seven, if you asked me what I was going to do, I would say I'm going to have my own company someday. I, I wow. had no idea what it was. Wow. But um, I just always had that urge. Um, Maybe don't like being told what to do. I don't. Yeah, know. <laughs> it's interesting. So for your parents, then with, with that type of mindset, did you acquire that from your parents? And what did they kind of do? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It's the complete opposite. My dad, who was my best friend, and uh, you know, I really had zero interest in in anything that had to do with business. He loved to go to his particular job. Yeah. And it's funny. Even when I was on to my second and going on to my third hotel, I would come back in the evening when he would visit and. He'd say, what kind of job do you have anyway? You know, you're still working at 8 o'clock at night. So yeah. it's funny. It, it's, it's sometimes those are the strengths when, yes, there's two ways to approach this. You know, you have a parent or you have a family or a support structure that mm -hmm. guides you into entrepreneurship. Yeah. Or you just have the hunger for it. And sometimes it's the, the contrast to your parents for that sure. gives you the strength to do it. And I used to, quite frankly, always love showing my parents and sharing with them things that to them were amazing. And, and yeah. sometimes I feel bad 
for my young fellows in that you know what's the air under their wings like yeah. mine was always that I felt like I was achieving things that they'd be really thought was cool and unusual but if you're yeah. already an entrepreneur you know you, you got to watch you don't put pressure on kids to try and one up or for sure. to do things but to, to just get in the river and swim with you you know yeah for sure so you know as we as we grow up as kids we aspire to be different things in different career fields and you said you'd aspire to be an entrepreneur and own your own business outside of say um, travel was there any other industry that you were looking at as a kid or always interested in yeah I think I would have looked at anything really yeah. and that's the truth I mean um, I just think I got magnetized towards property development I, I love physical things yeah um, I, I you know I was fortunate enough to have a very varied background I mean I started off in music I started off in fine arts and then mm. realized I was probably gonna start so uh, <laughs> it, but I, I you know it was a chance to be creative I, and yeah. I, I was fortunate to have that side but reality set in and luckily in time to start getting a little more serious about what I would put together academically so I became mm. a chartered accountant okay um, always you know and worked in the hotels while I went to university so mm. but there was just always this you know I, I, the CA program was really a means to the end and I, I say mm. to any young person that will listen and to anybody is if there's any one thing you do that you think you'll never do for the rest of your life take accounting yeah. I, I mean it sounds so basic but you know it doesn't change on you no one's tricking you they're not going to come out with accounting 2.10 yeah you know it's yeah. pretty well the same fundamentals that it was hundreds of years ago for sure and um, you just never will regret having that in your toolbox. So I, I mm. got to transition into that education-wise, okay. and then just a natural affiliation to things that are physical, so that led into property development. Wow, very interesting. So transitioning into this accounting degree, I'm curious, coming from northern side of town, where did you end up going to school then? Uh, Montreal for a little bit of that, but okay. uh, ultimately back in, in Nova Scotia at a university called St. Mary's, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful little business university, really mm. has grown since, but more importantly, had, it had some amazing professors that really had a lot of soul and, and mm. a lot of caring, and it, it, it always stuck with me. I mean, I would have, if you'd have asked me four years before I became a chartered accountant if I would even take an accounting course. I would have said no, and I, the reason I only mention that is because we can never forget the one thing that will either trigger with a young person to give them confidence to do something, or trigger with anybody in their career. And mm. and anytime we have the opportunity, never underestimate what one positive bit of feedback over one simple accounting exam, where in one minute I said I don't I dreaded taking the course and happened to come back with an amazing mark and a bit of encouragement from the teacher, next thing you know, two years later, I'm completely directed towards an accounting degree. Wow. And, and I can remember I can remember getting that grade back and thinking, I can do this. Yeah. And so it's been always powerful to me how much you can influence people or how much one nugget of positive can steer direction. So I always sure. get really upset when I hear someone say, I'm just not good at this, or I hear someone tell somebody, you're not good at this. Um, it's amazing the influence that can have. So here I am you know, chartered accountant, gone from art student, and wow. I can remember the tipping point for that, you know? Wow. So with your time at that university, were you involved with any athletics or maybe an accounting club or any other clubs during this time? You know, it's, it's funny, I, I, I not really can say that that was my big strong point. I wasn't the guy that everybody knew at that time. I, yeah. I, I had a, 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 and everybody has a different approach to things. Some people use sports as their, their, their portal. Some people mm. use other things. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I was still involved with music and loved, loved working. So a lot of my stuff was working with, uh, at the time, I actually worked my way up to be an executive sous chef. And oh. evening, so I would literally work full time while I was in university, and so that became my other part of the world. Uh, yeah. I loved always working with teams. That was really what I enjoyed doing. So um, I'd get there at three o'clock, and I loved putting our team together. And, wow. and so I've always been fortunate with that. But to be fair, a lot of that, I, and I admire guys that come up through the sports side, and they use that as their their lever. Yeah. Everybody looks for this. Um, you know, people will come to me and say, "What do I do to to get into business and how to." Everybody's got a different bounce board, for you sure. Know? And you just got to look at what your, what's in your box. You know, Absolutely. Like you say what's in your wallet, but you know what's in your box. What what are your tools? What are your likes? Because, 
you know, for instance, for me, it was so natural to get into work. A lot of people say, how can you work those many hours? Well, I love the team experience thing. Yeah. Uh, you have to grab on to stuff that you don't have to just completely think every minute you're doing it that you're doing it. And I, I know yeah. it's the old cliche, you know, do something you love and you never work a day. <laughs> but it's something you, you, you I don't see, care if it gets cliche, it's true. Yeah. You know, migrate to things that everybody does or so many people do what they're third and fourth best at. Mm, yes. They honestly don't feel privileged to do what they think they really would like to do. Yeah. So they back off from that. For sure. They say, that can't, that can't be. I, I like that too much. Yeah. You know? And I just encourage people to say, don't stop there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So moving on, following your time in college and prior to the Heartland Group, you said you became an accountant. Um, what are some kind of jobs to give reference that you were working at this time? Of course, right out of school and then in tr- transitioning further. And again, I've encouraged my sons and other young people that, it, as an example on the accounting side, I had to figure out something to get me in the boardroom. Yeah. That's what I called it. I got to get in the boardroom. And as a child that had really no business connections, zero, I mean none, when mm-hmm. I tell you none, none, the, the CA program, as an example, was an ultimate way for me to get in the boardroom. Mm. And, you, you know, the interesting thing with that side of it, it, it doesn't just get you in with managers or something like that, you're sitting in with the vice president, the yeah. president, because you're in these you know, planning meetings or audit meetings or whatever they may be, and yeah. you make the contact. And that was the most valuable thing. I mean, I would mm. literally go into the file room and pull files of other clients wow. in, for, in my spare time and just read, you know, how are they doing? Why are they doing well? Well, who is yeah. doing well? And, and, and it was just an, an abundance of connections and experience. And I, that was the whole plan for me in that program, and it worked beautifully. Mm. So with your time there, um, what I'm getting out of this is networking was very forefront of your work. Um, what would you say was the importance of networking and getting those connections for maybe your further career that you have today? Filtering people. Filtering people, filtering people is... Um, you know, the one thing I guess I was fortunate enough to have a sense about was you are who you are around. And we know mm-hmm. we hear that again, another cliche, but how many of us really do that? Yeah. So, how, you know, the ability for me to be exposed to people at that level that have positive energy, positive thinking, and gravitate towards those people and become part of that. And it's amazing, you know, there's a couple of things I always say, again, to, to anybody that wants to become an entrepreneur or do anything business wise is tell people what you want to do. Yeah. Amazing how many people will sit quietly and think, God, I so want to do this or that. And I said, and you're like, who wins the last time you told somebody? Oh, well, I'm not ready to tell anybody yet. Yeah. I, I, like when I decided I was going to property development, they'd be like, will you stop talking about property development? Wow. You know what I mean? Because yeah. people paint you the way that you paint yourself. For sure. And it, it doesn't mean you come in with an arrogant attitude. You come in with an eager and an honest attitude. But I very quickly, and still do today, if, if I'm with an individual, and we're forming any kind of a business relationship or client relationship, and I feel there's anything there that is, you know, not in my value set, Mm -hmm. it's very polite, but we disengage very quickly. And I'm fortunate to say that's been a huge part of what continues to float us even today. For sure. Is the, the, the people we have around us and the positive influence. For sure. I'm curious, um, not fully going into the Heartland Group today yet, but with your time in accounting, were there any partners that you brought ahead with you on real estate development and development in general? Interesting. I, I, um, I didn't bring anybody specifically out of the firm into our firm, mm-hmm. but it's, it's amazing how much networking it's continued to be as they've moved out and become VP of yeah. finance for other big groups. And so a lot of networking that way and, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But it's pretty rewarding because you, you get to sort of uh, gauge as you come out, you know, how have you been doing in comparison to a lot of the guys that were, you were, as we used to say, in the bullpen with. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's fun to watch how people have taken different directions. But, you know, you, that's the kind of exposure that if you can, and there's many ways to do it, but, you know, get yourself in front of people that, you know, if, if you think there's something you want to do or some area, and you're in a job right now that doesn't at all lend itself towards that, mm. you know, you sometimes got to bite the bullet and get yeah. in front of people that are going to put you in the direction that you want. For sure. Um, and that's, that's, it's, it's an easier thing to, to do than what you, you know, to, to say it and do it. But, you know, the, the other thing that, that is important is, 
you need to place yourself, if you want to become entrepreneurial and you're, you're, you're in a job right now, you've got to admit that you can't apologize or find that it's against what your work mm. to be thinking entrepreneurially during the day. Yeah. So if mm -hmm. you've got to take something less money, I, I you know, I quit, uh, the, left the CA firm, beautiful office downtown, got to go in a suit every day, mm -hmm. and I left to join two partners that were doing self-storage facilities, and they yeah. just happened to be in the start of their growth. And I mean, on the surface, it looked like a huge downgrade. Yeah. But to me, it was a huge upgrade because I really had a lot of faith in these two guys. They were brothers. And I really felt they were going to give me the opportunity to bridge that gap where yeah. I wasn't trying to handle somebody else's finances every day. Mm -hmm. I could sit and openly talk during the day about new entrepreneurial ideas. Now, we, yeah. all, we had our work to do, but you got to eventually place yourself in that position where you have some entrepreneurial mm. time and you know, get yourself in an environment where you can talk entrepreneurially. Yeah, right. for sure. You don't want to be at work going, hey, why are you doing that? You're supposed to be doing this. Don't be talking about this yeah. idea. You, you don't do that for five years and wonder why you're no further ahead. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. Um, right there is really the entrepreneurial spirit is taking that risk of something that you might have greater here and going down lower here and seeing a true vision. And it sounds like these two partners that you joined, that's exactly what happened. So I'm curious, you said, of course, you saw their vision. What led you and what gave you that security and comfort to work with them out of your firm that you were currently at? Yeah, I mean, at some point you have to say to yourself, what do I got to lose? Yeah. Right? You, if, you, if you constantly have a list of reasons to not do it, you, you'll always gravitate towards that. Yeah. And I've always found two things, you know, gut feel, just good or bad, go to bed and t ask yourself 20 times, I'm doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm doing it. Mm. Which way does your stomach settle, right? And, yeah. and it will eventually tell you. But you know, there is always this turning point where you'll have 15 excuses not to do it. Mm -hmm. You gotta bridge it, do, base it on people, yeah. base it on people. And I really made that leap of faith because I immediately had a lot of trust. I, I, you know, I did the, the due diligence on these gentlemen they had great reputations mm -hmm. and you know people will sometimes put so much hard work and effort into people they don't believe above them they don't yeah. believe in that person but they tolerate it and that's okay if you're gaining some experience that you're going to move on with but don't invest your valuable time especially in your mm -hmm. younger years or your mid years yeah. into people you don't believe in above you for sure better to go what seems to be a step or two down and get in with people that will engage with you and, and, and get synergies, you know? 100%. Um, that's where opportunity starts. Exactly. And opportunity often doesn't start big. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just doesn't. It, for sure. It has a price of admission. For sure. So role-wise for yourself with that company that you just joined, um, what were you doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Was it their main accounting? Yeah, they wanted someone that uh, could do uh, as the company was growing sort of quickly, uh, handled the financial side, but really could go beyond that. I mean, my nickname mm. in, in the CA program was MacGyver. And I just was one of those guys that could still fix a lot of things and, and understood physical plant, understood that, and that was yeah. the, from dad's side. But I, I, was, I was able to be sort of multi-directional uh, in that regard. And, that, and mm. that fit very well with this smaller entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And um, we, we sort of did a, a lot of great things together. We wow. pioneered uh, big box retail. We did subdivisions together. And, um, you know, they were, they were fair guys. They said, I said, look, I'll leave the CA firm and come in if I can have a third of any new project. Mm -hmm. And it worked out amazing. So, wow. Yeah. So your departure with this group of guys, you guys uh, found some success for sure through your years there at the startup base with the growth. Mm -hmm. So what eventually happened on the exit period for both you and your partners? Well, you know, it was a great, uh, all for a great reason. Uh, we had uh, malls and some subdivisions and they had some existing holdings in various types of real estate. And, you know, in Canada at the time, the REITs really wanted anything that had a solid cash flow. So mm. uh, I found myself very young, early 30 uh, or so, where we had liquidated the malls and things that we had done, the subdivisions. They were about 15 years older and wanted to semi-retire. So you know, when we first got together, the trade-off was they wanted more time and I wanted more money. I had time yeah. and no money, and they had money and wanted more time. Yeah. Perfect trade. For sure, <laughs> yes. And these, are, again, are the things you look for if you're trying to align yourself with people. You know, you, 
you know, what, what, what is, what, where could we be in four years and stuff? But mm. we had a, a, a nice liquidation event, and I was obsessed with offshore tax planning on a legal basis. Yeah. Um, you know, as a Canadian, it's a, it's an important consideration if you're not handing back 50% of everything you do. Yeah. Um, you know, people tend to forget that, you know, proper tax planning is the biggest return you can ever give yourself. You know, yeah. you'll, you'll work so hard to get 20% on something but give 50% away. Yeah. So I, I just was intrigued with it, uh, having a chartered accounting background. And so, again, you know, they were ready to wind down. I wasn't. I came down here and for an offshore tax planning seminar, of all things. Wow. And uh, fell in love with the place. And I went home, was in love with it, and thought, met a lot of clients at this seminar and thing like that. But I thought, you know, I was just glad to be warm, maybe. Maybe I was the pina coladas and the yeah. warm air, and I had to go back to foggy Nova Scotia. <laughs> but I did exactly what I told you, and I really did do this. I would tell myself 20 times I'm not doing it, and I'd yeah. wait and see how I felt. And then I would say, no, 20 times I'm doing it, and I'd wait and see how I felt. Yeah. And the, the doing it got me back down on a second trip. And, wow. Um, it, yeah, it led to buying the first parcel, but, you know, what's interesting is uh, a lot of people think that, you know, we, we've done probably a half a million square feet of resort construction down here since mm -hmm. I've arrived, and so it's, it's, it's a lot, and yeah. we now have, you know, 700 plus employees, wow. but everybody thinks we came down with this pile of money. Yeah. I literally was like, when you go to Vegas. <laughs> Yeah, and you say this is how much I'm spending, and then I'm walking away. Yeah, um, I I basically did that, and I mean I felt that I had to put it on myself to be creative enough not to put everything onto this. Mm. That if I couldn't make it organically work, then don't keep fighting it. Sometimes yeah. I'm not a build it and they will come guy. Yeah, uh, I think you 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 put samples and tests out and things that give you indicators whether you're getting traction. Mm -hmm. But I always sort of shake my head when. I'll see a developer that gets talked into building a project that is got no sales, mm. hasn't been able to get any pre-sales, and they say, no, but build it and you'll be fine. I yeah. mean, you know, so um, I came down, we, we limited the amount of investment at that time to about three or $400,000. Wow. And that's amazing if you think about it. Yeah. And I made that work uh, and used that as the seed money to get, you know, the, the design that, to the point where we needed it and, and whatnot. But that was the seed money that had to prove up and incubate other interests. Yeah. And sure enough, with that, we were able to attract some, some pre-sales, some pre-investors, wow. and that started to prove the momentum. Then you could start to let more out. But mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, people just get, you get your own biased, and it's easy to do. And, uh, and sometimes the more experience you get, the more dangerous it is. You know, yeah. At least when you're not that experienced, you, you, you're very much more cautious than what was that. Yeah. But as you get more experience, I, I watch and I have to watch it myself where I'm like, hey, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, for and sure. And I'm just going to go and build this one. Well, yeah. you know, I always say the land isn't what gets you in trouble. It's everything you put on top of it. 100%. <laughs> so to attract the eyes of investors, you, you typically have to have some either time experience under your belt in the development of what you're doing or show success in sales. I'm, I'm very curious with that 300000 roughly, what did you invest into to prove that what you were doing was the right yeah, it was everything that that gave it, uh, you know, a virtual life, if you will. Okay, mm. um, you know, I didn't get, get spending a lot of money on sales centers and all this stuff that, you know, it was all about stuff that would give people a vision of what we could see. You know, and back in the day, <laughs> dating myself, but <laughs> when we did renderings, they were <laughs> hand painted renderings. You know what I mean? Wow. These were not computer generated uh, in '95. So, uh, but but I really put our money into that. I, I put it into uh, uh, making it so that we could get in front of people and we got very smart about where we would spend that money mm. um, a lot of people would go and run a $20,000 ad in the New York Times well if you think of how you're trying to get that in front of a client and really turn that into something it's like looking through one of those door peep holes backwards yeah. you know, you're trying to laser pinpoint some guy in New York that mm. has to be thinking about buying something has to know Turks yeah. and Caicos has to you know instead of we would put all of our money onto on island uh, promotion, imaging, mm -hmm. and envisioning. Yeah. And so uh, anything, it, I just made sure if you landed on this island, you knew we were doing this. Wow. And I didn't care if it was on the back of a shopping cart, on a sign on the road, if it was yeah. wherever we could get it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was it. We, we, and I just did a lot of um, hand selling. We just made sure we were, I was here. Um, there, even to this day, there, you know, 
to how many, 300 owners, 200 owners, 50 owners later. Very seldom is there a new owner that is a first time buyer that I don't personally take the time to meet. Wow. Because um, it's always been so important to me that that fit, that relationship, is starts off on the right foot. For and, sure. And, and on, 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 on expectation levels, both directions. Yeah. You know? Uh, I've always been very important. We, we use real estate agents a lot now, and we find that we, we really find that valuable. But even with that, we really insist so that I know what you've been told mm. and you know what to expect from me. For sure. So when I was talking to one of the tour guides at the Sands when I was taking a, a tour, we looked out on the property and she kind of explained this palm tree concept that was at the very beginning. So buildings were not allowed to be above a palm tree height, correct? In the early, early days, it was three, three stories. Wow, so th there's that, and then also at the same time, what did, when you arrived here, what did Turks and Caicos in general, the tourist, look like? Say, for example, resorts. Mm -hmm. it, it'd be easier for me to tell you what, like, you know, what was here rather than what wasn't. It was, it's so amazing, wow. like, uh, literally on the entire Grace Bay, which, you know, you've seen now how far that's come along. Yeah. Uh, two or three properties. Uh, wow. One of which was in bankruptcy, was uh, the Allegro project, there was a small one, Sibone Club Med, and mm. Ocean Club was, uh, had a couple buildings on there. But wow. um, the, the one that had just opened, which is now Sandals, but was so small, was called Royal Bay, and it, it had sat for about 10 years, uh, unconstruct, you know, partly constructed, mm -hmm. and when it finally got completed, um, it was called the Royal Bay, but that was it. And in fact, the, it was funny, and I, I, you look back and you think, boy, how did I have the courage to keep pushing through this because I'd be looking at land sites yeah. and there'd be like these signs all faded and dropped over on the site saying you know you know opening 1992 <laughs> you know, wow. and it was like that didn't work out yeah well. no so um, it was just again one of these things and you know if you can let rope out in pieces like when we did the sands you know again we didn't try to set the world on fire it was we, we got you know, I always loved the book with really Julie, Julie really Annie, where he mm -hmm. said, you know, do one thing right and people will start to build on it. So he picked one thing that he could do when he first got in office, you know? Yeah. And he just wasn't complicated, but he, he just said he could do that and he did it. Mm. And so we did the same thing in, in our concept. Yeah. You know, we told people we would get to this stage by that stage. I didn't try to do the whole thing. I said, we will have our permits by now. We yeah. did it. We will have our this. And... You know, again, everybody can take those building blocks and use them. If you're, you know, just getting into being an entrepreneur, you want to start building it, don't take on so much that, you know, you, you're going to start looking bad on some of the mission statements that you put out. Yeah. Make them more simple, make them achievable. For sure. So with the Sands being your first property, what was your vision for the Sands to be, for cetera? Or for example, the demographic, was it family-based and all-around resort? What was that? I mean, it pretty well had to be somewhat family-based for us, you know what I yeah. mean? Because, uh, you know, at that time, single people wouldn't make that kind of investment. Um, yeah. It took people that could, and especially the way, I guess, that we sold. I really always tried to get away from the fact that we were selling a physical unit. Mm. We were selling something that I could get you to envision bringing your family down into. Yeah. And that's really become apparent to us, you know. In the initial days, so many people would look at it and think, we're selling apartments, we're selling, you're not. Yeah. You're selling trust because these people will be 2,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. You know, my salesman at the time would say, oh, they started another development down the street. I think their cabinets are nicer than ours. Mm. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. But I bet you they don't trust them as much as they trust us. Or we got to make sure they trust us. Mm. And, and when you started really looking down to what your product was doing, it made it much more simple to sell. Yeah. And we gravitated to families that, in that regard. And it's amazing now, 20 years later, to see... The kids that came to the sales presentation this high are getting married wow. at the resort, you know? Wow. And, and so it's been amazing to watch that transition. And it's amazing when I have an owner that's been with us for 20 years say, we are so glad we didn't get back on that plane and buy wow. nothing, you know? And that's always been very compelling to us. So very it, cool. it adds a lot of joy to what we do. Yeah. So when I was at uh, some of the dinners this week, I was asking some of the GMs about retaining clients. And from just hearing you speak just now, what do you think it was that helped you retain your clients, um, your owners, etc.? Especially at that early stage where there's uncertainty, but they stayed for quite a long time. Yeah, I think it's just honesty. Hon yeah. there, you know, there's always bad news. There's always some good news. 
Um, it's when they catch you burying the bad news that you lose trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being, again, this meeting up front and expectation with your client is a huge thing. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, when you're, especially in the early days and you were really desperate for a sale, you almost didn't want to bring up anything negative. Yeah. But I had a philosophy that if I said that, if I said something mm. and was open about it, they're going to trust what I do say a lot more. Yeah. And I think it's more powerful for people to believe the good things and have two bad things and to believe nothing you say. Mm-hmm. And so we just had that philosophy. I think people, people you, you want people to get excited about the challenge and become part of your project too. Yeah. Don't make them the problem. Like, oh, you know, we're going to be a little late on this or this is going to be longer to build. And we Make them part of the process. Mm-hmm. They, the, you know, I used to, to, to purposely, when we were able to start sending pictures out, do that to people and let them stay excited about the process. Yeah. Oftentimes people would say, well, maybe we should just look at something that already exists. And I would turn that around and say, but you won't have the same fun over the next two years that you will watching your, your condo come together. And yeah. coming down for, and then you could see the wheels spinning. Like, yeah, I guess if we buy the other place, we don't get to be part of that excitement. And, for sure. Um, so you, you find ways to, to craft around the human experience that's going to happen. Don't try mm. to make everything so polished yeah. that the second anything goes wrong, now you've created the expectation and disappointment. Yeah. So... I presume word of mouth was a big marketing tactic. Being such an early adapter here in Turks and Caicos, what would you say was the main form of marketing um, to attract your demographic to the Sands? I learned very quickly, and actually in the second project, before I even had the real estate agents come Mm. in, I actually invited the lawyers to come in, right? Yeah. And trust companies and things like that. Because if I really thought about it, back in that day, people were coming down if they were doing offshore tax planning or anything like that, first thing that they would do is they would get a trusted relationship with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So who do I want to know about the projects? Because ultimately, if they come and they get excited about a project, the first person that can kill the sale is a lawyer. Yeah. Because they'll start telling you everything that can go wrong. So I took the approach that I need to be ahead of that curve. So the first people that I would invite in to do my presentation and to open up, and I would give them all the contracts. I would give them everything and say, come back to me with your concerns. So we could pre-answer those. And that was a a powerful way to retain these sales because so many times people would get excited. Most of our buyers at that time would come down and not expect to buy anything. They just got excited with the location, which is easy to do here. And they find themselves getting on a plane going, we just bought that right so yeah. it takes very little at that point to to knock off the decision-making process so mm. we found by building the relationship with the lawyers and having them really understand the project it, it really helps to keep the retention and and the expectation correct so another topic I brought up with the tour guide when we were walking by the pool was the early adaptation of the palms and I know your family is very involved as well that I heard um, one of the tour guides stated that near the restaurant, you actually have your son's prints where that property was built. I'm really curious on that stage, when did that happen? And was that just a stepping stone knowing that you accomplished this, this is happening? Yeah, that was a fun moment. And uh, those little footprints, we did them on one of the pours up by by one of the restaurants. And again, I think these are very personal properties. These are little personal uh, achievement statements to us as a family. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're right. I didn't know you knew about that story, and uh, but they, we've done that. And there's always some little touch. And you know, the boys even when they were this big would be involved in whether they just came down and pressure washed a walkway. You know, yeah. that engagement. And and it's nice now that they're graduating and coming back, and I, I can see them folding into this. And Very so cool. that's always a wonderful thing because you know it's one thing if you're a doctor or some specialty, you know, you, you, you don't get to hand that on the same way as you do uh, business, which For is sure. another advantage with the entrepreneurial side of things. For sure. So with the growth of the Sands at this time, you had this vision to extend to another resort, which is the Palms, which we have today. I was curious, what inspired you to venture off to create another resort? Was it specifically the success with the Sands? And what, when was that time period? That transition is exactly, again, another thing, anytime we're talking in an entrepreneurial setting or youth or anybody's asking, mm-hmm. this is a prime example of stop over analyzing everything, get in the water and swim. 
mm. right? Because I would have never been able to come up and pre-contemplate the yeah. Palms concept. Yeah. Right? The Palms was the next generation. There's really been three generations, if you will, here of, of this condo resort concept. And it was mm -hmm. completely new when we were doing the sand. So we did it at a level that we could feel our way around. We didn't know, we have, didn't have all the answers. Yeah. And we certainly weren't ready to go on and do something as like the Palms, which was the next generation of this concept where you know, the Sands has more limited amenities. The Palms was the first, really the first in Turks and Caicos and one of the most predominant in the Caribbean to take the risk of putting major amount of amenities with a condo hotel. Mm. Because, you know, so many times the condo hotel concept was done and the developer would focus on selling the real estate and very little focus on post operations. Yeah. You know, so you got some little laundry this big, you got uh, a room somewhere in one of the buildings, it's called a spa you got a little reception. We completely went the opposite way. We designed it as an amazing resort and then, then said, how do we design the real estate that we can sell it as part of the funding? Mm -hmm. And so the Palms was really the first one to have you know, a world-class spa, you know, multiple restaurants, retail mm -hmm. shops on there, and really done to the degree that you see it today and to the, to the level we did it. But the, 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 I was told so many times that will not work. People will, you know, this was back in the day when a million and a half to two million dollars was a big amount for a, a condo. Yeah. And we were a million and a half to two plus million. Mm -hmm. And people said, nobody is going to buy that and put it into a rental program and want people in it. And yeah. But because we'd gotten in the water and swam mm -hmm. and took a chance on the sands and stayed in close contact with our client and, and understood what their next step was, we could see the confidence growing in the concept. Mm. Right. Yeah. So we developed our own confidence level. Someone, all I could sell, I couldn't go above like five ninety five for a condo, no matter how big, no matter what I did with it. When we first started the concept, yeah. When people started to use it for a couple of years and go, you know, we like this. This is really working. Uh, we're making some money. It's paying. You know, I'm not writing you checks. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, what then they would say, well, our home back in Greenwich is quite a bit different than what we have here. Yeah. We would like to move up. So the, the confidence in that started to grow. And so that's the, that's the dividend you get by being bold enough to start getting in the water and swimming. Mm. You get information that others on the outside don't get and you get it timely, you get it in advance of the marketplace and it helps you with the confidence to get onto the next project. Yeah. So when we went to launch that, I was actually able to, from our reputation at the time and from some of the existing buyers, create a scheme where we, like when I say scheme, I always say, say, say <laughs> it sounds bad, but yeah. create a program where uh, we had like four or five buyers that paid 75% of their purchase price up front in return for getting the very first picks of the units and they would get interest on that, those funds during construction. So we, wow. we had our own instant internal equity build program from you know, the, the good results we had gotten from the SANS. And mm -hmm. so it was like a built-in buyer base and a built-in funding base. Wow. So with the SANS and the evolution, step up with the Palms. I'm curious with the clients that you had at the SANS, were they eager to go with the evolution or did you have clients stay? We had, uh, ironically, very little switchover on a, on a resort client base from the Sands to the Palms. Okay. We did have conversions of probably 15 to 20% of our purchase base, mm. okay? Yeah. But in terms of the client base, they're very, they're very segregated. They, they come for different reasons. They come with very different expectations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we actually have a funny story where we got overbooked at the Sands one time and we put that client over at the Palms expecting to get unbelievable accolades. Yeah. And he was very upset that he got moved over. Wow. And I was like, how does that happen? And he said, look, you know, and it made sense. He said, my family comes down, we have a certain budget. We didn't want to send our kid to a fancy place to get a, yeah. a this or that. We, we like, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's really great. It was a great learning curve to see that, but very, very different mm -hmm. client bases at the two. Yeah. The, the, you know, we try to go very high level service at the Palms and multiple amenities, and we expect those guests to participate in those amenities. Very cool. So with the Palms being established in 2005, you had a time period there from 2005 to 2016 with where we're at right now, the Shore Club. I'm curious, this transition from the evolution of the Sands 
to the Palms and to the Shore Club. What was the vision with the Shore Club now from such a prestigious spot like the Palms? We, we uh, took a, a major gamble on the Shore Club because, mm. again, uh, we went to a side of the island that had not been developed. Yeah. And in many cases, people couldn't see what we were seeing. I was fortunate enough to have had a home on Long Bay side mm. and really got to understand and appreciate what it had to offer. And it's more of a boutique feeling beach. It's more of a residential feeling beach. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little different because you've got the, the nice trade winds all the time on this side. Mm -hmm. And But what was interesting was I could see where a lot of my clients, again, this is get in the water and swim. Yeah. Um, where the, to them, the Turks had grown to a point that was getting busy mm -hmm. in their minds. So yeah. Someone else can arrive today and say, this place is barely developed. Yeah. But if you've got a client that's been with you for 20 years and used to walk and see two or three resorts on the beach, mm. they want to get back to that. And I could see that there was a lot of demand from people saying that we're here as longtime supporters of Turks and Caicos, that we're looking to sort of have an experience that didn't mean they had to go off to another island, yeah. like, like some of our other properties that, that are here. Um, but you know, it was a couple miles away, but it felt like it was 50 miles away. Mm. Yeah, and that's really what the shore club was, became about, and and I think people even thought, well, if you do that, are you going to build more inexpensive units? And we said, no, we're going the opposite way. We're going to go ultra high end because we think the privacy, the extra privacy, and and that has such an intrinsic value. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so we were really breaking completely new ground on that. And again, you know, we really leaned on the fact that we had a, a good underlying support base. Mm. Now, you know, we. I managed to somehow launch the Palms right after 9-11. Yeah, yeah. So I had this really good timing to try and promote. For sure, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but, but we got through that, and then I managed to launch the Shore Club exactly on the financial crisis when, you know, literally in 2009, when things were just falling apart, that's just when we had launched. So, wow. Uh, but we even with that, we still did a, 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 a good amount of sales, and we held on to that. But just for everybody's sake, we waited until things really started to recover to get the project underway, mm. and we, we opened it in 2016. Wow. But it, it, it has its own vernacular, its own purpose. Um, you know, as you can see, it includes Villa product. And yeah. it's, it's, we, we purposely did this project. We could have done more height, more density. We purposely downplayed it. Mm. So each of these has their own little thing. The Sands, you know, it has its niche. The Palms has its niche on, on Grace Bay. This has its own purposeful niche. For sure. And it's it's funny, we watch the different client base at each one and you know, this attracts a much more active lifestyle. People wanna get out, they wanna kiteboard, they wanna sail, they wanna go paddleboarding, they they just do much more of that yeah. here. Um, and so it, it's it's really fun to watch the, the demographics at each place. Very cool. So from the forefront then with established places right on Grace Bay. How do you attract tourists who are looking at reviews and where to go for their destination on Turks and Caicos when this is so new on this side of the town? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and that again takes time. That's that filtering thing. You know, I will tell you that, you know, honesty with the travel professionals and honesty in your marketing is mm -hmm. something that you won't regret. Um, yeah. Sooner you know, as much as we want every client we can certainly have, better to have that client placed in the right spot hmm. and then and not have them in the wrong spot. And and that can be on either either end. Like, you know, um, you know, here at the Shore Club you could watch as the first round of people come through, there were those that completely got attached to the property and some hmm. that just they wanted to get back into the mainstream. Yeah. And it's about quickly identifying who, what is it they loved and what is it they would have preferred to be in a different spot. Mm -hmm. So now we're just, I mean, the place is book solid. It's, yeah. uh, it, but it's this it's underlying base that comes, returns. We have people that have already been at this property six, seven times. Wow. And of course, you know, it's just that natural progression that you just need to have patience and develop. Yeah. But the faster you're honest with your client, the faster you're really painting the picture of what your strengths are mm -hmm. and what is different than the mainstream, the better off you are because you get towards that honed-in client mm. that that comes and just they become very loyal to the property. For sure. So when I was at dinner the other night, I was talking to a few of your employees 
um, your GMs, etc. And what they share about your own personality personally is you're very selfless and humble with your properties. They talk to you up a lot. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to hear was when you're looking for your employees at Turks and Caicos and for your resorts, what do you look for and what, what do your employees mean for the success of mm. your properties? Yeah. We have, the theory is uh, every time you get an amazing person, do everything you can to call them because they will bring you other amazing people. Mm. And when you have someone that has a bad attitude, do everything you can in your power to try and either change that attitude or move along. Yeah. Because they will bring more bad people. Mm -hmm. And it's very, especially in a small community, it, it is, you are so fortunate when you've brought in one of those people that just has a positive personality, you know, wants to see the company do well, you know, isn't, you know, and, and you, I just watch it time and time again. They bring you three and four, because people will come for an interview. Oh, my friend works here, so-and-so. Wow, okay, great. We might not have had that opportunity to get yeah. that person in. It's, you know, but we ebb and flow like everybody, you know. I wish we could say every day is just, a, you know, like Mary Poppins, but the reality is, you know, we're in a small environment, and so human resource gets pulled and strained and pushed and strained. Mm. And so, you know, now with the opening of one of the new large properties with the Ritz, it puts the strain island-wide on everything because, yeah. you know, you know, if, if the focus is, which it should be, to predominantly hire people from the islands, indigenous mm. belongers from the island, you know, there are only so many additions to that population every year. And if we're adding, you know, 400 rooms into that small mix, yeah. it's always a challenge. And mm. so uh, staff retention and HR is something that we have to really hugely invest in here. For sure. Yeah. So I'm very curious, um, with your properties that you have with the Heartland Group today and your surrounding, I'm not sure if you call them competitors or other resorts, what would you say is the main differentiation between the Heartland Group resorts and your neighbors, I would say? Yeah. We call them those guys. Those guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we, we try hard as we can. And I, you know, everybody uses the cliche, we try the company to be a family. But we truly try to start there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a quick little story is, you know, I've always asked the staff, I don't care if you know right now that the fork goes here and that should exactly go here. We'll get there. Mm -hmm. But I just ask that you show you care yeah. and you're kind. Because mm. to be fair, the Caribbean's an interesting region in that the visitor coming is actually quite tolerant to the fact that tourism in many of the islands is still quite new industry. It's not yeah. been around since, you know, 1800s or something, yeah. you know? And and they, they love the charm of, of the Caribbean. So if there's anywhere that you'll get a little forgiveness in that, it's here. Mm. And, you know, we ultimately want it to be completely. But I loved it one time. I had a, a couple that were leaving, an older couple, and I said uh, they were at the Palms, and they, they said it in a very interesting way. I, they, they said, oh, is this your property? I said, did you enjoy it? Oh, yes, it was great. They said it reminds us of you know, I guess I can say it's Sandy Lane in Barbados. Wow. And um, they said the difference is, you know, one, you could tell I've been doing it for years, and they would have a procedure if, if we fell and hurt ourselves. But we don't know 100% if here they might not have the same procedure, but they would be devastated. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective that you feel that way after being here for a week, you know? For sure. So spending so much time in Turks and Caicos now, I'm, I'm really curious, and I'm sure my audience is as well, for yourself, where do you find leisure time, or what is travel to you? It's a good, good question. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm addicted to, uh, we love doing rally, uh, rally racing as a family. Mm. And so uh, part of that takes us around to different spots, um, but largely a lot Barbados, uh, okay. ironically, because uh, they have a great rally club. But we try to, to, to make those trips one of two things. Um, we have a place back in Nova Scotia that's sort of, the tranquil grounding pad. Mm -hmm. And then other things with us are very um, event-based. So uh, at least maybe once a year, try to do something that gives us a comp set type of experience. But it's, yeah. it's funny, we, uh, I think maybe because of where we live and we're around sort of resort type amenities a lot, our experiences are more like something we specifically want to go do. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's probably only once a year where we go out and say, 
you know, we have no reason to go here other than we're going to visit there. Yeah. And, and we'll do, you know, do something that's a little longer and do that. But a lot of it's getting off and, and, and sort of, you know, going to, to these events and rallies and mm-hmm. love doing it. Very and, cool. And it's a great, it, just a great way to get your mind off yeah. and, and do something else. For but sure. Once you're in that car and you're racing, you don't think of anything else. Also, do you ever head back home to your uh, hometown, Canada? Yeah, pretty often. We have a summer place up there. We try to get up for about four or five weeks a year. And, and I think it's important. I love the boys to be grounded and not forget where we came from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just an incredible spot and, you know, uh, amazing people that live there. And Very I think cool. that's been always a big part of, uh, of the culture that I think blends so nicely with here. Yeah. You, know, you got to be in the surroundings that you love. I think I would have probably melted down if I went into Miami and tried to do what I did. I, yeah. Too many rules and regulations. For sure. So I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret? Just anything. I think one of them that I always say, and I said it a little earlier, is is tell people what you have on your mind, what you want to do. Mm. Um, And try to mold into, uh, so that Everything that will get you closer to being an entrepreneur is something that you naturally like. I use this example, like, I look at guys that I know that are in great shape, and I think, geez, I'd like to do that. Yeah. And then I go to the gym twice. And, you know, it's just, you know, you got to admit sometimes that that particular thing is, yes, you want to do enough to be healthy, but don't look at somebody and and to them, they get up and they naturally go to the gym, and that's what they do, and that becomes their priority. To, you just be open with yourself the degree to which being an entrepreneur is important to you because everybody will say they want money yeah and that's the first thing everybody ties into being an entrepreneur yeah it can't always be the only reason I, I, I didn't intend to do the amount we did mm. it's just I got into something I loved and we just end up doing a lot more of it than I thought yeah and it becomes natural so you know, people will get so obsessed with the money side that they'll start to try an entrepreneurial thing that they may not even enjoy doing. Mm. Um, take the time to say, what would, what am I naturally gravitated to? Yeah. And, you know, just, just like people who are naturally gravitated to exercise, guess what? They're the ones that are in the best shape. For sure. If you're naturally gravitated, you're going to be the best business person in that area. For sure. And so those are the couple of things, you know, there's no one formula, but... All I know is it has to be something that is in your mindset on a daily basis. When you see someone who's very physically fit, it's part of their mindset. They don't mm. even think about it. it yeah. it's, it's, and so start to develop yourself as an entrepreneur. You can't be going out of that mindset constantly and then trying to do it at between 7 and 8 at night. Yeah. You know, put yourself in an environment, you know, again, using this exercise thing. Mm-hmm. If you had nowhere to work out but you wanted to have great you know muscles yeah how are you going to get there right mm-hmm. so it's no different in, in entrepreneurship if you're not placing yourself in a place where you can exercise yourself that way when i say that thinking about it experimenting with making calls making contacts with people then you've got to start creating that space for yourself mm, for sure stan thank you so much yeah. for joining me today and to the listeners out there make sure to check out our properties here uh, the heartland group they have the palms the sands and the shore club beautiful properties. I highly recommend. Make it out here to Turks and Caicos. And we hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for some behind the scenes videos. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.